welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Nadim Saman, who is a curator at KW Institute for Contemporary Art in Berlin. He is the author of a newly published book called Poetics of Encryption, Art and the Technocene, that is out now from publishers Hatcha Kantz. I'll put a link in the description for this episode. Longtime listeners may recognize Nadim as a returning guest to the podcast. Our previous episode was out only on the paywalled feed. At that time, we were discussing a digital exhibition at KW titled Open Secret that included many friends of the stream, like New Models, Rachel Rawson, Ava and Franco Matez, among many others. The book we're talking about today contains a familiar cohort of artists. John Raffman, Trevor Paglin, Simon Denny, Britta Tai, American artist Hito Sterl, Zach Blass, Chimpom, Ed Forniellis, my old D&D partner on the Twitch stream, and Brad Trammell, my longtime collaborator, among numerous others. It's a tour de force of the past 10 years of art, looking at how technology and the internet are changing our society. The book is around 25% art and 75% text written by Nadim, so it really feels like the work and the essays are co-producing this idea of the technocene, which Nadim characterizes as, quote, the overwhelming prevalence of technology in all corners of life and death, such that it becomes the subject of a cultural reckoning. He continues on, in the context of a poetics of encryption, The term technocene fixes upon the open experience of temporality that is generated by a landscape of black sites, black boxes, and black holes. These go on to include cryogenic freezing for life extension, the resurrection of prehistoric animals, ancient viruses revived in high-tech laboratories, zombie social media profiles, a return to archaic religious affect in the presence of consumer electronics and the rise of powerful AI. This project culminates in a massive exhibition to take place in February of 2024 at KW Institute of Contemporary Art in Berlin. I'll hand it over to Nadim in a moment, but before I sign off for this intro, I want to leave you with a final quote from the book. He writes, Much new art registers a growing understanding that the mediating masks of tech do not end with the screen's edge. They are prevalent everywhere else too, occupying an expanded field without limit and have become the ideological astroturf upon which any politics must walk. I hope you enjoy the episode. This is Dr. Nadim Saman. This book is really a reflection on the last 10 years of my artistic engagements in Berlin. I had a project space for seven years called Import Project, and I started it when I first moved to the city. And that was around in 2012 when I started that. At the time, you know, the post-internet scene was extremely vibrant in Berlin. It still wasn't a dirty word yet. And (laughs) I was very interested in joining a conversation about how artists uh, relate to emerging technologies. In my view, that it was a broader question than what is a post-internet style or not. It's really about how is technology changing our life from politics and our economic to our sex lives. And I think that that is a concern that just 
lives on today, whether or not uh, anyone thinks the term post-internet captures it, it's just a live issue. How is digital change and emerging technology reordering all of our lives and the cultural sphere in general? People talk about computation is almost in the middle of every transaction. Well, technology is almost in the middle of every relationship we have today. And the thing about that is it is it changes the sort of the temporal dynamics that we experience. So I think that our place in time is unsettled at the moment. You can scan, scan ancient statuary, uh, you can create a data set out of prehistoric artifacts, and you can have, you know, again, uh, an AI generate speculative cultural patrimony. You can map the human genome and you can work on bespoke gene in CRISPR. Viruses that were lying dormant under the ice are now released. So we have this scrambling of space and time that goes with digital change. And with that in mind, the experience of the present is totally different. It's really hard to understand what that moment is. And I think that's what the techno theme is. It's a major scrambling of our place in time. This book, in a way, crystallizes this turn toward pessimism after the Snowden revelations, after WikiLeaks. This book is really about the crypt in encryption. That is to say, like a spatial imaginary you know, the inside of hidden technology. And if you can't access that inside, like if you don't have the key to unlock, to like, you know, look under the hood, then you still have to deal with it. And so there's a lot of analogy that goes on. There's a lot of translation. And there's a lot of like psychological bargaining, wherein we like to think of ourselves as scientifically minded, enlightened, and, and so on. And we understand that these things were created by people. So they are on principle, understandable. But in practice, they're not. And so there's this tension between, between the science fiction of our scientism and the daily relation, which is much more closer to faith and, and all these, and these more archaic structures. And so we tell ourselves stories about what our relationship is to the tech. Obviously, the word enlightenment, it has within it the light that comes from Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, the enlightened, as it were, the ones who see the truth, the ones who can like look at the sun. The unenlightened are the ones, you know, who look at shadows and take them as the thing that they are the shadows of. There's something in between them and the truth. The slaves in the cave only deal with the mediation. Well, I think funnily enough, Silicon Valley's been telling us that the world is, is opening up, everything's getting more transparent, information is at our fingertips. But I think that we're living in a proliferating landscape of black boxes. And so we have this kind of counter movement. So much of tech is occluded, it's unavailable. So I use these three, three metaphors or images that you know, are ways to look at different artists' work. So the first is black sight. You know that term from like CIA rendition programs. You feel yourself unable to escape tracking, data capture, all those sorts of things that are really like prevalent in the politics of privacy. On the flip side of the black site being locked in, there's being locked out. Now being locked out, that's the black box. And then the third one, I use the, the third section, the third metaphor is black hole. That's when concepts of inside and outside, they're all scrambled. Definitions get stretched. The idea of the black hole as a metaphor for super dense computational processes or super dense digital archives. You may take in the whole archive in the course of your lifetime. There's just more to read than you could ever than you have out in the day. The, the parameters in one of these large, huge AI models, there's trillions of parameters, you know, for like GPT-4 and so on. So all you can do is look at how they warp cultural space-time around them. The distortions uh, that, that happen around these super dense 
sort of digital beings. But I think that all these distortions of like identity and like meaning, that's what occurs around the super dense digital agent. I think artists are creating artwork that sort of express exemplary distortions. And they're all kind of like new sphinxes for the contemporary age. They're all strange new chimeras that ask, ask a riddle, you know, a riddle, something like how, are we, how can we live with it? In these analogies, the characters being distracted by the shadows within the cave, right? There's this idea that eventually you could find the sun, you can crawl out, you can emerge into this clear understanding of the actual world. But you describe that the technocene is this period of eclipse, maybe this complex stack, multifaceted levels of alienation that comprise contemporary life of vastly complicated communications technologies that are too dense for the rational human mind to understand, um, that uh, clarity has been obscured in some sense. I was very fascinated by that choice of metaphor because an eclipse in itself is uh, it's temporary. Um, and you do say explicitly in the book that the technocene, as you understand it, is not the end of history, that, that there is conceivably something that comes after. When does this period end? What would once again restore those conditions to have rationality, to understand the world in which we exist without uh, you know, the need for this kind of conspiracy and folkloric understanding of these complex technologies? I can't say that I have the answer for that. I mean, I think that this book is really, uh, it's a diagnosis, but I do say that these exemplary chimeras, they're, you know, and I, talk, I literally think about Marguerite Humeau's sculptures of sphinxes. I think about Evan Franco's wonderful panorama cat, which is a taxidermied cat, but it, I think it has eight legs. And that cat is a kind of one-to-one, three-dimensional physicalization of a glitch that you'd have when the panorama function on your camera stretches your photo of your house cat to a kind of a surreal proportions with multiple legs. I mean, what they've done is they've sort of shown how the, the datification of the world brings about distortions. Cats are great. You know, the cats are also the, you know, they are like the core meme, right? And they're domestic gods. Cats are... They're like the feral at home. They watch over domestic space in, in a certain sense. And they're, and they're sphinxes too. The sphinx is a cat. So the idea, at least this is where I'm heading with at least, you know, some of my views from the work in the last chapter, you know, spending time with these, these cryptids, these chimeras, try to figure out what they're asking, you know, asking about us. Because, you know, the riddle of the sphinx classically is, you know, what goes on four legs in the morning and uh, two legs in the afternoon and, you know, and it's a man, a human, you know, crawling as a baby on four legs, standing as a, you know, a mature physical specimen, you know, in the prime of your youth. And then, you know, in your old age with a cane. Can we answer the same thing today when they ask, you know, a question of us? You know, what are we, what are we to make of uh, ourselves today? Maybe th- that's not the answer. Um, so I think that they're all kind of, they're suggestive totems, perhaps, for maybe even a new religion. You, you know, artists like Nora Al-Badri talk about speculative cultural heritage and sort of generative uh, deities. And you hear that outside of art too. I think that there's something in that. I'm not sure where it's going, but I, I, I see it in the art. There's something that happens in this um, 
complex network of systems where you're in search of conspiracy, you're kind of migrating through these different networks, you're exploring different corners of, uh, you know, dark recesses of the internet. And um, it actually produces the cryptids and the conspiracies that people were searching for in the first place, right? So the idea that the kind of uh, panorama cat of this glitch that could be created by just moving your phone, capturing an image of your house is then made real through this technology, it kind of sets off this self-fulfilling cycle where the system is too complex, it can only be understood through conspiracy and folklore, and then you look deeper into the system to try and gain clarity, and then you find the artifacts of conspiracy and folklore. So in some cases, that is very literal in the book, where we might say, you know, Trevor Paglin's pieces of um, looking at covert CIA programs all the way up until um, the Fresno Nightwalker or like Bigfoot or something like that, that seems to be given life through all of these complicated systems. Do you have thoughts about why conspiracy is so essential to today's online culture? The idea that there are hidden powers behind the scene, it's totally plausible. It's, and it, it's not even a speculation from a technical point of view. But we know that there's like this generative power behind the thing. When it comes to something like the revolution in finance through cryptocurrencies, the notion that one pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto is, is the architect of a whole financial system, yet we don't know who the person is or even if they exist, that sets the mind racing. You know that the five eyes, the surveillance services are watching. You know that we've heard about Cambridge Analytics, all that sort of stuff. So that's just half of the course. But then there is this other level of connective action rather than collective action. Before I left for Berlin to start my space, there were these riots in London, and these riots kind of took off. Part of the analysis was that the segment of the population who were rioting, they were young people, and they, they, they didn't have like, you know, much money, as it were, for their phone plans. So they were all on BlackBerry, and BlackBerry had a like, send to all in your contact uh, service, and it was free. And so it just, there was this viral communication and everyone could show up, you know, at the drop of a hat and kind of make something happen. It was also around about the same time as Occupy Wall Street and the, the phrase, we are the 99%, there's this idea that if we just perform a multitude, like if we get to a number, a quantity, then maybe equality will emerge. So, so you don't have to gather behind an actual program necessarily, you, not, not, not like an ideological program. You can just gather behind, you know, a technical program. Uh, you can just perform a number. You can just connect. And, and so there's this kind of sleight of hand in which the idea of like something really holding together intellectually and, and meaningfully, it's switched out for almost a technical construction of a group. And I think that conspiracies are a bit like that too. And they lend themselves to LARPing and role play. And it's almost like the exquisite corpse of the surrealists. You know, you just keep adding something to it. And, and eventually it's, it's a walking, talking dinosaur or, you know, sphinx. It's also fun. You know, conspiracies are fun. You can, you can, you can be part of a whole without having to even understand the whole. And there's something about this sense of scale too, which is just, I think, very clearly incentivized by some kind of idea of like having a more equitable society. Once you reach the appropriate scale of network effects is like exactly the promise of uh, Web2 Silicon Valley uh, social media. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. But it's also about, you know, trying to draw the many into the one. I mean, 
that's our whole idea of uh, you know a community or you know a political community is about binding in the individual into a group and that having that group mean something. So if you have individual pieces of data or information and you know they're all potentially at your fingertips, it's just an it's just such a tempting thing to try and bind it all up into one. And then you know the thing is obviously they not everything can cohere into the same well into one logic position or platform. That's why you end up with these highly illogical political formations. But it doesn't matter because uh, you end up at a kind of a post-truth in which all contradictions, not that they're resolved, it's almost that like the contradiction prove the point. And then you're, then you're really just out on a limb, you know, with the QAnon crowd. Maybe there's too much information and the idea of having a theory of everything that just kind of, that like the landscape has been cut or designed in such a fashion to prevent people from establishing universalisms, maybe. Once you solve the problems so of find everything up, tie a bow in it, you figure out like what the system is, then wouldn't you know it? The system is that actually the, you know, you don't know the truth and that someone's behind the scenes and like this is all, it's all fake. Psyops all the way down. You end up in another, (laughs) yeah, it's it's just a hall of mirrors. Kind of love all this. I I, I love all this. And this is also why I think like, you know, someone like Marguerite Humeau um, and a lot of these works to do with like sort of AI mashups of cultural heritage. It's so interesting because what you have in these forms, which are like super monstrous hybrid kind of like mutant forms, you have the kind of visualization or the physicalization of this idea that anything can be like bashed together and like almost like smoothed out to look like one being or one agent. She's an artist who kind of performs the sort of Franken, Dr. Frankenstein, like the autodidact. What would it be if, you know, a um, 10 year old female human injected a rabbit's brain what kind of embryo would result? It's just, it's just so insane. Um, but the forms are so fascinating. They're like powerful religious totems. You can't look away from them. And this is also what my, my book, Poetics of Encryption, which we've been talking about today, what it set out to do is once we get to a point where the complexity of the system is just too much to be kind of held in the mind's eye and in its truth, once it has to be kind of, once it has to be a metonym invoked, once you have to use folklore to explain a system that you either don't understand or that you're locked out of, once you have to use like narrative or pictorial kind of methods to represent something that's inherently code, like ones and zeros, then you're, you're, you're back with analogy. You're doing analog cultures of the digital. And that is not necessarily a bad place to be. That's the world we live in most of the time. That's where we tell our stories. I think we need to learn how, how to relate the complexity and the strangeness of this moment to the ways people understood their times previously. I mean, this is this is my training as a historian. I think that's one of the reasons you see so many allusions to classical art and prehistoric art in work that has to do with AI and the internet. I mean, look, Oliver Larratt has been working with like Greek statues forever. Nora Albaji is working with prehistoric artifacts from Mesopotamia and Iraq. Um, you see people like Ego Craft, you know, using GANs to reconstruct classical statuary. I mean, it goes on. These are all tokens for a time of humanism, I think. A time of humanism. A time of humanism. A time of humanism. Nadim, thank you so much for joining me today. I just, I absolutely love the frame of your book, and it's a real pleasure to read. You've managed to collect basically, I would say all of my favorite artists into one uh, anthology series. And it's just an absolute pleasure. 
thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And uh, I hope to see you soon in Berlin.